God is good. Amen? Amen. Amen. All the time. I'm weary, folks. I'm weary. The political season was exhausting. I'm sure you're feeling some of that pressure, and, and now the controversy only lingers. And uh, not only that, it's seeming to get worse. Facebook and social media in general has become a, a, a minefield of political banter and vitriolic fear-mongering. It seems that both sides of the political fence are more guilty of uh, promoting fake news and, and gotcha propaganda to promote their ideology regardless if it's true or not. And that's grievous. And believers should not be part of this nonsense. We shouldn't. Uh, the mandate is clear in the scriptures of what our responsibility is with the government, and that is to pray for the government and to participate in the government as, as best uh, we can to make our country a strong country. But we have to be very careful about how we engage. And I, and I, I want to I tell you something. It, it is interesting that... Uh, Solomon's words are just as true today as they were thousands of years ago. There's nothing new under the sun. In a passage that we're dealing with this morning, and we've been working through the Gospel of John, and we, we went through uh, John 7, and we saw the, 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 the challenge in John 7, and the whole idea of the Feast of Booths, and, and how Jesus came in four days late, and, 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 and preached uh, he cried out in the temple and all of that. And so, uh, and so now we come into this very interesting vignette, this very interesting story in the midst of this that I think it's worth our time looking at. And, and uh, there's some gotcha propaganda that the scribes and Pharisees are pushing to catch their enemy. Uh, their enemy being Jesus. In, his, uh, in, his, in a theological trap, if you will. But I have to tell you, Jesus' response is as good as they get. And we can learn much from him. And his response does more than put this group of people in their place. It shows them their own heart and how desperately, how desperately they need him in his life. And so this leads to the main idea that I want to I give you this morning. Others' sin may seem significant until we see our own. Others' sin may seem very significant until we see our own. Now we're dealing with, just to be honest with you, we're dealing with a very controversial passage of Scripture this morning. The controversial in the sense of its placement in John and whether or not it is truly Scripture or not. And, uh, and I would encourage you to study this issue through for yourself um, to see, see what conclusion you come to. Uh, some of the earliest manuscripts, the earliest Greek manuscripts, do not contain this particular passage uh, from 7 verse thir- uh, 53 to chapter 8, verse 11. And if you look in some of your Bibles, you'll notice a footnote that, that makes mention of that. And so I bring that to your attention, not to cause you to doubt the veracity of the Word of God, but in fact encourage you in the fact that the Word of God is, is in fact truth. Now, I 
look at this passage as Scripture, as many do. In fact, Calvin thought of it as Scripture, and, uh, and uh, J.C. Ryle thought of it as Scripture. And it's kind of split right down the middle of the theologians who take both sides of this. So I'm going to take the side that says it is, because it's, uh, it's a wonderful passage. And I'll tell you why. I, I, there's many reasons as to why I would say it, but here's a very simple one. It, uh, it has very good truth in it, that does not contradict the rest of the scriptures, and therefore I think it's worth our time working through. And so I will treat it as a, legi- a legitimate text of scripture, okay? Uh, and, and, and it's worth our time to help us in our growth as believers. And there are three thoughts that, that I want to cover from this text this morning, and they all deal with how we view sin. Uh, first, looking for sin in others, which we're very gifted at, Uh, Number two, looking at sin in myself, which is a little more challenging. And then lastly, number three, looking to the one who delivers from sin. And so let's start with the one that comes most naturally to all. Looking for sin in others. That's the first point. And look at the text with me. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, and he came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and he began to teach them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in chapter 7, verse 53, the text tells us that everyone went home. And Jesus went to a place of rest as well. And not to belabor the point, but it's good for us to remember that our Savior had no place during his ministry to call his own. I think that's an interesting thing for us to remember. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20 says, Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds have the air. And have nests, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus Christ did not come here with pomp and circumstance. Jesus Christ, as you watched the inauguration, no doubt, there's a lot of pomp and circumstance and a lot of, a, a lot of uh, regality, if that's even a word. I, if it's not, I just made it up. But, uh, you know, there, there, and, and so the most powerful people in the world enjoy uh, all the accoutrements that, uh, that society has to bring, and, and we enjoy doing that. Our Savior knew nothing of that. And he came and didn't even have a home to live in. And uh, it's an amazing thought that the God of the universe took on the form of man to dwell among us in such a meager, such a humble fashion. And that ought to cause pause in our, in our thinking when we, when we appreciate who Jesus Christ is. So and after a day of teaching, everyone got to retire to their comfortable home except for Jesus Christ. And he went to the Mount of Olives and perhaps he slept under the stars at the uh, Garden of Gethsemane or he lodged at the home of Mary, Martha, and, and Lazarus, uh, located just over the ridge, uh, just east of the mount. But nonetheless, it was his custom. In Luke chapter 21, verse 37, it says, Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but in the evening he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And, and, and again, I point this out not as a main emphasis, but to show the character of our Lord and, and, and the determination 
not for us not to get caught up in the trappings of this world. It's so easy to do. And his mindset is inspiring, and it is the polar opposite, the absolute polar opposite of his enemies that hate and continue to oppose him. We have to feel this tension in the Gospel of John. And John does a marvelous job of laying, laying this, this, this animosity that his enemies, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the chief priests, the scribes, all of them have against Jesus Christ. We don't want to miss that very important point. Now when we go to verse 2, it tells us that early in the morning he came into the temple and, and he yet again is drawing a crowd. Jesus is a rock star at this point. He, is, he draws a crowd. Whether they agreed with him or not, he drew a crowd because they were intrigued by him. He was wildly popular among the people. And like I said, certainly not everyone, not everyone believed, and certainly there were many that doubted, and even those that were skeptical of Jesus Christ, yet, yet he was a captivating and authoritative teacher who spoke truth boldly, yet in love. And we're wise to see how he handles himself and do our best by his grace and through the power of the Spirit to emulate that kind of interaction with people. In this particular situation, as a rabbi, he sat. That was the posture of a rabbi. He sat and he taught them. And whether this was the official eighth day of the feast, the feast was seven days, but it turned out to ending up having eight days. And whether this was the eighth day of the feast or not, we're not, we're not sure exactly. But I mention, because on the seventh day, he did not sit to teach, interestingly enough. Rather, he stood and he cried out, all of you who are thirsty, come to me and have a drink. And it will well up within you. The ministry of the Holy Spirit will well up within you into eternal life. And you can go back and study that for yourself. Anyway, as Jesus was teaching the people in the courtyard of the temple, the scribes and the Pharisees enacted a plan that they no doubt concocted some time ago. They, they found a woman caught in the middle of adultery, in the act of adultery. They, they found her and they paraded her to the temple court and they threw her in the midst of the people being taught by Jesus Christ. Now put, try to put yourself in this scenario. I'm not sure if this was a, a spur-of-the-moment situation or if it was premeditated. I suspect it was premeditated. And if it was something premeditated and something that they indeed planned, it's kind of creepy if you think about it. Did these scribes and did these Pharisees have a task force of sorts out combing the streets searching for this type of indiscretion? We don't know. But also, what about the man? They grabbed the woman. What about the man? Where was he? Did, they, did he just run off and he was too fast for him or, or what? Why did they just grab the woman in this case? I think there's a reason for that and I'll try to address that later. Whatever the case, what we do know is that they threw her in the center of the area of worship 
And they put her there. They put her out there with no mercy and only judgment. They wanted to charge her publicly. And if you remember in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, God says, I desire mercy more than I desire sacrifice and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I, res- I rather see mercy than following the letter of the law. Their spirit, the spirit of the scribes and the spirit of the Pharisees, was full of pride. It was judgmental self-righteousness. And they were just downright mean to this woman. And I understand that she was caught in the act of adultery. But their motives were far from pure. They were not concerned with the holiness of God or the purity of the nation of their, of their people. They weren't concerned with those things. That wasn't the reason that they were seeking out this woman to, to find her and, and to publicly bring her before them. That wasn't the point at all. They weren't concerned for God's holiness. They had a much more sinister agenda at hand. There's one reason, there's one reason they were looking for this sin in this woman, and that was to trap Jesus. A terrible trap. Now remember, remember how angry these people are with Jesus. Time after time, he would best them in arguments against him. And in the last chapter, they sent, if you remember, the temple guard after him. And the temple guard went to retrieve him. And Jesus was so captivating in his speech, in his talking to the people, in his teaching. He was so captivating and and engaging. They couldn't bring themselves to arrest him. Which only infuriated the religious even more. He was popular with the people. And so they had to do something The religious, the scribes and the Pharisees had to do something that would damage his persona with the people and have him publicly denunciate the law. So either way, whether they would damage his persona with the people and how he handled this woman or how he handled the law. And so their plan? Look for a sin in another And their hope, how would Jesus handle this? And we're going to see how he handled it. But their hope was in either direction. He is done for. We got him. We finally got this guy. He's either going to denunciate the law, he's going to repudiate the law, and then we can nail him for that, or he is not going to be very gracious to this woman, and we can nail him for that, and the public will soon reject him. It's a brilliant plan. But for us here this morning, for us here this morning, is there anything that we can learn from this particular part of the text? See, at the heart of their motivation to bring this sinful, adulterous woman before them was was an inherent superiority in their opinion of themselves. They, They thought very highly of themselves better and more righteous than this particular sinner before them. I love what Holt had to say when she was saying how, we, how, how sometimes we can elevate ourselves above the Creator. 
Well, these guys were doing this all the time. And they thought they were righteous. They thought they had a special relationship with God because they followed the law to the T, the scribes and the Pharisees. They believed they were far more righteous than this sinner that was before them. They exuded spirituality with every breath they took. I'm sorry, they they exuded superiority in their spirituality with every breath that they took. Folks, there is a big and simple lesson for you and I here this morning. We can spend too much time thinking about the sin of others to the exclusion of recognizing sin in ourselves. We can spend way too much energy worrying about how others are not right with God and forgetting that we are merely sinners saved by grace. Our merits are meaningless, in fact worthless, in comparison to the righteousness of Christ. Our position in Christ shouldn't elevate our opinion of ourselves, but instead it should elevate our gratitude and appreciation for our Savior. So my question for you here this morning is this. Do you, like the scribes and the Pharisees, think more highly of yourself than you ought to? Now, I'll just be honest with you. Sometimes I think that's my spiritual gift. I've often said to you, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. It's easy. It's so easy to elevate ourselves. To think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. Now, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen? We just talked about that this morning in our, in our equipping time. And so, so praise God. And, and we find our value in His creativity in creating us. But man, we ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And that's exactly what the scribes and that's exactly what the Pharisees did. So my question for us is, do we think more highly than we ought to? And you can tell that you do. You can tell when you do if you spend your time and energy verbally gossiping and slandering and denigrating others while elevating yourself in the process. That's one surefire way. Even though this text doesn't necessarily draw that out, that's one surefire way to find out if you have a higher opinion of yourself than those around you. How do you speak about others? How do you view others? And you can find out very quickly. That's a barometer for you to see if you think highly, more highly of yourself than you ought to. There's a wonderful story in uh, the book of Genesis. It's right kind of in the middle of the story of Joseph um, in Genesis chapter 38. And it's, in, and it's uh, 9 through 12. It's Judah and Tamar. Okay, Judah and Tamar. And, and, uh, and it's a very interesting story. Judah was, was um, the father, if you will. And, uh, and so he, uh, he had some sons. And, and this, this situation is a very bizarre situation. And two of his sons died, and, and uh, his daughter-in-law was, was distraught at the death of her husband. And so he said, my next son, when he's of age, I will give him to you, and then you can further on your, uh, your, we can further on the generations through him. Okay? Well, his son came of age, and Judah promptly forgot 
to actually fulfill his promise to Tamar. And so what she did is she put herself, she disguised herself, and she sat at the gate as a prostitute. She wanted to find out what was going on here. And Judah came along and he propositioned her. He didn't know it was her because she had her face covered. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, folks. This is, this is the word of God here. And so, and so uh, in verse 14 of this chapter, it says, Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangement had been made for her to come and to marry him. So she changed, or she, she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. And then she sat beside the road at the entrance of the village of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute, and since she had covered her face, so he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that it was his own daughter-in-law. And, she sa- and, and, uh, and, he- and so he said, how much will you, will you pay to have sex with me, Tamar asked. And I'll send you a young goat from my flock, Judah, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. What kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. She said, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick that you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her, and then he had intercourse with her, and she became pregnant. Afterward, she went back home, took off her veil, and put on her widow's clothing as usual. Later, Judah asked his friend and, and, to take the young goat and, and to go find this woman and to, and to pick up his guarantee. But Hira couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, where can I find this shrine prostitute who was sitting beside the road at the entrance of Enam? He said, we never had a shrine prostitute here. What are you talking about? So Hira returned to Judah and and told him I couldn't find her anywhere. And so he said, well, let her keep the things that I gave her. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughing stock of the village if you went back again to look for her. Well... About three months later, Judah told Tamar, uh, or Judah was told about Tamar, and and it was told that she was pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Whoops. Judah recognized them immediately and said, She is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shelah. Hmm. Others' sins. Others' sins seem more significant until we see our own. Judah was throwing her under the bus until it came to light that he was just as wicked. Ladies and gentlemen, we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful that we don't spend all of our energies looking strictly for the sin in others. Number two, looking at the sin in myself. Verses five through nine. Now, in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? 
And they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote in the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote in the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. So not only do the scribes and the Pharisees trot this woman out, caught in the act of adultery, they also do the one thing that they're great at. They bring out the law. They bring out the law. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 10 says, If there is a woman, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. In Deuteronomy 22, 22, it says, If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with this woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. And herein lies their devious plan. Their devious plan of entrapment. Now, now please understand Please understand that they are trying to catch Jesus between a theological rock and a hard place. And it was a really good try. Seriously. You see, if they could get him to condemn her to the stoning death that she deserved, and she did deserve it according to the law, there's no question about that. But if, he could, if they could get him to condemn her to the stoning death that she, would, she did deserve there would be two serious and detrimental impacts. First, they were hoping that if, the, if, the, if he did condemn her, the crowd would be disillusioned with him because he was a compassionate man. He went around doing good. He healed people. There was a time in Jesus' ministry where if, if you were sick and you got to him, he would heal you. He was a compassionate person. And they were hoping to wipe that all away and make him look mean and and judgmental. So that was one thing. They wanted to reduce the popularity of Jesus with the crowd. Second, and more importantly, if he did condemn her to death by stoning, he would be in trouble with Rome because the Jews under Roman authority were not allowed to instigate capital punishment. If you remember in John 18.31... Later on in the story of Jesus, so Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. So if they could get Jesus to condemn her, and as a rabbi recommend that she would be stoned to death, they could bring that to the Romans and say, See, this guy's against you. Brilliant. They're brilliant. On the other hand... If Jesus would have left her out, or left, uh, if Jesus would have let her off the hook, if you will, without judgment against her, he would have been justly accused of going against the law of God, and they would have been able to reject him as a credible rabbi. So this is a very well thought out plan. So either way, Jesus is—he's—he's he's toast. He's done. Uh, Augustine said this. He said. They said in themselves, let us put before him a woman caught in adultery. Let us ask 
what is ordered in the law concerning her, if he shall bid stone her, he will not have the repute or the reputation of gentleness. If he gives sentence to let her go, he will not keep righteousness. In other words, keep the law. So at last, they got him. They got him right where they want him. So what does Jesus do? He bends down and he starts drawing in the dirt. It's odd. He doesn't draw, actually. He's writing. What Jesus wrote is anybody's guess. And and many people over the years have conjectured. Perhaps he's writing some scripture. Maybe he's writing the seventh commandment along with Leviticus uh, 2010 and Deuteronomy 22.22, the seventh commandment being uh, do not commit adultery. Or maybe he's writing out Numbers chapter 5, verse 17 that says uh, a very strange thing in Numbers. If you want to prove that somebody is an adulteress, you, uh, I'll read it for you. It's very strange, and, and I would encourage you to read it. It says, And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, and then he shall take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. And if she is guilty of adultery, her belly will swell and her thigh will reduce. Interesting. I don't understand all that, but that's, that's what he said. Maybe he's writing that out in there. Or in Jeremiah 17, 13, uh, he, maybe he was writing this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of the living water, even the Lord. What a beautiful thing that he might have been writing. And the irony that he's actually writing that in the earth. Or he was writing nothing of significance at all. We, we don't know. But, but they, could, they wouldn't stop, according to the text, they wouldn't stop pressing the issue. And so, as he's writing, he finally responds verbally. And I must tell you, I wish I were there for that one. I wish I were there to hear him and then to see their faces. Jesus is, as usual, nothing short of brilliant. In one short, inspired sentence, Jesus got to the heart of the matter. Uh, J.C. Ryle says this, he says, It neither condemned nor justified the adulteress, and yet showed our Lord's reverence for the law of Moses. Bam! I mean, he just nailed it perfectly. Right bullseye. He couldn't have answered it more brilliantly. And most importantly, with this one statement, with this one inspired sentence, he got to their heart and they saw what they didn't anticipate seeing, nor did they want to see. And you know what that is? He who is without sin among you, let him first to be a thro- let him first to throw a stone at her. After he uttered those words, he bent back down. He bent back down and began writing in the dirt again. He leveled a truth bomb so powerful, it stopped all of them, the scribes and the Pharisees, in their tracks. From the oldest to the youngest, they started to leave. From the oldest to the youngest, they left until it was Jesus and her. And the crowd. But why? Why? Why would they all leave? 
Well, yes, certainly Jesus challenged, uh, that challenge that he laid forth, that truth bomb that he dropped on them, cut to their sinful condition. There's no question about that. But why did they, but did they leave as a result of shame? Did they feel bad? Perhaps. There's no doubt. There's no doubt that some of them felt bad, I'm sure. Uh, and there's no doubt that there was a double standard in this culture. In fact, some, some people are very clear in suggesting that those men, some commentators said that those men were probably guilty, not just of general sin, but guilty of adultery themselves. So that very well may be part of it. J.C. Ryle says this, these men, these, remember, these men were adulterers at heart. Ryle says this, Many think that when our Lord said, He that is without sin, He meant the expression to be taken in a general sense. I cannot hold this view, Ryle says. It would involve the awkward conclusion that no one could be a judge at all or, or punish a criminal because no one is altogether and absolutely without sin. I am decidedly of the opinion that our Lord referred to sin against the seventh commandment in particular. There's too much reason to think that such sin was very common among the Jews in our Lord's time. The expression, an adulterous generation, is full of meaning. He called them an adulterous generation. And so, and shame, and the realization of their hypocrisy... Uh, I, I would like to think, I would like to think that that was in part some of the reason, some of their decision to go away. But unfortunately, it seems shame is less of a motivator here. They had just suffered another humiliating defeat. Remember, this was a very public event, and Jesus once again made, made their brilliant trap look foolish. In one simple little sentence. His wisdom was far greater than Solomon's. And they had no answer. They had no answer. Remember when Solomon, when he had the, he had the woman with the one baby and, and, and one mother said, well, it's my baby. And the other mother said, no, it's my baby. And, and, and Solomon said, all right, give me the baby. Hand me a sword. And he's ready to cut that baby in half. And the, and the real mother said, no, no, give that baby to the other woman. Ah, you're the real mother. Brilliant. Jesus is far wiser than Solomon. Jesus is the epitome of wisdom. And they were so humiliated. They, in their pride, could do only one thing. What happens if you are so humiliated? What do you want to do? If you are publicly disgraced, what do you want to do? You want to get out of there. You want to turn tail and run. So, is there some shame involved? Perhaps. But I think this was more about their wicked heart. And they, they had been bested by the best. And when the younger, when the younger saw the older leave, because you know the young guys, they're always ready to fight, right? Am I right? The young guys want to fight. But when they see the older guys who are more wise start to leave, they're like, oh man, there ain't no fight here. And they all leave. And they leave Jesus and this young woman in the center of the court. Listen. History proved out that 
this humiliation among many others, the group that was around them, that Jesus afflicted on the religious elite only fueled their fire to have him destroyed. This was yet another time that just put more fuel in that fire that that motivated them to want him dead. And they left because the only other choice they had would be to repent and admit he was right. And not one of them, to a man, stayed to do that. Listen, I hope you see the application here. Jesus, the personification of wisdom, the personification of truth, confronts sin. He, 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 he points it out simply and clearly. The question for us this morning is how do we respond? When someone points out sin in your life, how do you respond? Are you defensive? Do you become angry? Do you get frustrated with the person and then proceed to point out their, their, uh, their sin and, and, and uh, as some sort of uh, lame red herring argument to get them, off the, get them off your back? Is that how you handle it? Or do you honestly listen with ears to hear and to understand? A wise person, let me tell you this, it's not easy, but a wise person will listen to people. And they will listen to people's perception of them. And, and their perception may be off. But I guarantee you, there's probably a percentage of truth that we are wise to listen to. Right? And a wise person listens to that without becoming defensive and actually thank them for the opportunity for their growth. That's what a wise person does. Obviously. These Pharisees and scribes were not wise. They were not teachable. They had an agenda. So folks, I bring this up to you this morning. I bring this up to you because all sin starts in the heart. All sin starts in the heart. This, this woman was engaging in the very act and the scribes and Pharisees apparently had something going on as well. They, they perhaps were engaging in adultery as well. Listen, what about you? Adultery specifically is mentioned in this particular, in this particular passage, so I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it as a point of application for us as well. Adultery is sex outside of marriage. So are you, are you engaging in adultery? Are you toying with the idea? Remember, it all starts in the mind and in the heart. And you could have a relationship that's not going very well, a marriage relationship that's not going very well, and, and you start thinking about, boy, if I just... Then the grass starts to look greener on the other side. We can see from the Word of God that that is not the answer. That is not the direction that we should go. We want to be very careful. And I bring this up because the text brings this up. Don't respond. Uh, Don't respond like the scribes and the Pharisees. Remember, folks, sin brings forth death. If you're struggling in this area, come and talk to me. 
Talk to one of your elders. If this is an issue that you're wrestling with, don't succumb to it. Not, and we're not going to be like the scribes and the Pharisees and pointing our finger at you and saying, what's wrong with you? No, because I know that sin brings forth death. And I don't want that for you. I don't want a death of a relationship. I don't want a death in your family in that sense. And we need to do whatever we can to help you survive through that process. So if you're struggling with that, don't play with it. Come and see us. Come and see me. Don't respond like the scribes and the Pharisees. Don't, don't become defensive. Looking at the sin in myself is never fun, but it is absolutely necessary, not only for my salvation, but for my growth as a believer in Christ. 1 John 1.9 says very clearly, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't know about your situation, but my wife, before she leaves home, Spends a fair amount of time preparing herself. Now, the woman up on the screen is not my wife. My wife is way more beautiful. Oh, thank you. I'm serious. I like, I think I like her. All right. Um, but anyway, uh, now, now, how strange would it be for her to be spending all of her time in prep work, you know, putting makeup on, and she's got a big hunk of stromboli stuck to her face? Okay, and she puts makeup on and around it, and and she doesn't actually remove it. That, that would be very odd. What is the point of looking into the mirror in the first place? She looks in order to remove and to perfect. Okay, Jesus is doing this very same thing. He pointed out their sin like a mirror points out the stromboli stuck to our face. We can walk away. We can do nothing about it, or we can clean ourselves. And if there is a sin in your life, get clean. Don't be like the Pharisees and scribes that just walk away in defensiveness. Do whatever you need to do to get clean. Listen, others' sins seem significant until we see our own. So we want to we look, we want to be careful of how we look at the sins in others. We want to look at the sin in ourselves. And then lastly, look at the one who delivers from sin. Look at verses 10 and 11. Straighten up, straightening up. Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. So they were gone. They were gone. The ones that hunted her, the ones that caught her in the act of adultery, the ones who dragged her, who humiliated her and and shamed her publicly before this teacher of Galilee, where were they now? Where were they now? Just a short time ago, they they were full of bravado and confidence because they at last, they at last had Jesus in a terrible trap only to be humiliated and ashamed like the woman they dragged into the center of the court. Now they were gone. The men who, by the standard of the law, had every right to have her stoned were confronted by the same law, and now they were gone. So Jesus gets up from writing in the dirt and asks her, 
Now he asks her a simple question. Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Remember, he's asking this in front of the crowd. That's important for us to know. He could have asked her anything. He could have asked her if she committed adultery. He could have rebuked her for her sinful choice. But he does none of these things. Instead, he asks her, did no one condemn you? And she she responded, no one, Lord. I'm sure she understood what she faced and, and perhaps had prepared herself for the inevitable reality of her choice. But nothing would have prepared her for the response that Jesus gave her. By the way, notice how Jesus treats this woman who was caught in adultery. He treats her with dignity and respect. The fact that he speaks to her in that culture, in the temple, in front of all of these other people, most likely the majority of which were men, is evidence enough. He talks with her, and the only one who had the right to condemn her to death chooses not to. I do not condemn you either. That's beautiful. Now please notice one more thing. Jesus does not condone her behavior either. He does not say what she has done is no big deal. Sin is a big deal because sin brings forth death. Now he commands her to leave this life of sin. Leave this life of sin. Augustine says this, How, Lord, dost thou then favor sin? Not so, assuredly. In other words, are you, look, are you looking favorably upon sin? No way. Mark what he says, Augustine says. Go henceforth, sin no more. You see then that the Lord condemned, but he condemned the sin, not a person. For were he a favor of sin, were he for sin, he would say, neither I will condemn thee, Go live as thou will. Right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, hey, just go ahead and live however you want to live. It doesn't matter. It matters greatly. And his counsel to her is to take heed to that and sin no more. And she, like the scribes and the Pharisees, had a choice to follow his command and, and, and be delivered or, or to do things her way. And I don't know how she ended up. But she has the same choice that the scribes and the Pharisees had. And listen, you have the same choice as well. You have, a, you have the choice to stay in your sin or to choose this day whom you will serve. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. Jesus did not condemn this woman in adultery. In fact, condemnation, as we see in John 3.17, was not his goal. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. He came to save. Salvation is offered to a world who is condemned already. And that's what verse 18 says. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The only hope for this woman, the only hope for this woman The only hope for this woman to sin no more is to put her trust in Jesus Christ, the one who never sinned in the first place. This, This, ladies and gentlemen, is the crux of the gospel. 
And when you think of the story of Jesus and walking on the water, and as he walked on the water, Peter gets out of the boat, doesn't he? And we give Peter a hard time about this, that he started sinking. But he got out of the boat. We've got to give him credit for that. Nobody else got out of the boat. And at first he takes a few steps, but quickly he begins to sink into the water until he fixes his eyes upon Jesus and looks to him as his only hope for deliverance. And that's exactly what Jesus does. That's exactly what Jesus does. He delivers. So I ask you this morning, who, who are you looking for? Who are you looking to for your deliverance? Listen, this is a challenging story, but it's a story that we need, to, we need to review nonetheless. Because others' sins seem significant until we see our own. And until we see our own, we cannot be ripe for the gospel. And we cannot be ripe for continued growth in Jesus Christ. We have to know where we stand, that we have offended God. Over and over again, we have offended him by breaking his law. And yet he graciously delivers us from our eternal debt in hell because of the sin that God, or because of of Jesus Christ and what God has done through him, his shed blood on the cross. As he hung on the cross, he paid for that sin that you and I so engaged in over the course of our lives. And paid the sin debt that we owe for all of eternity. Listen, we need to be careful about looking at others' sin. We need to be, we need to be careful to look at our own sin. And we need to especially be careful to look at the one who delivers us from sin. So regardless of who you identify with in this amazing story, I hope you walk away with a deeper appreciation and admiration for Jesus Christ. And also remember this, until you consistently come to terms with your own sin, you will not have the grace to deal with the sin in others. Father, thank you. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for this word. Lord, help us. Help us to be the kind of people